0: Today I'll be reading for you and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright For a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, There are lots of instructions in this small paragraph that is rooted in the reality of who we are as your sons, those who are treated as sons because of what your son has done. We come now, Father, hearing this word, and we ask that you would make it a lamp to our feet, and that it would pierce our hearts so that we would not fail to obtain your grace even this day in the hearing and preaching of your word. Pour out your spirit, Father, in this time so that we may hear you and respond to your word and be healed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. As you can see from the title of today's sermon, um, it's hard for me. They tell me as a, um, when I'm doing any kind of training, that to try to not always try to rhyme or to use alliteration where everything has to start with the same letter. But for some reason, it just wants something that kind of falls into place for me. I don't know if it's just, I like those kind of rhymy kind of things, but I hope that you don't find them to be too corny. And I think in this particular passage today, as you can see in this title, that I hope that it's something that will stick with you. There are some times where I feel like I might be grasping a little bit to make things rhyme or to match with the same letter. But in this particular sermon today, I hope that it is sticking with you, that you will remember who you are with your birthright by what has been accomplished in Christ And that it would help you to hold more tightly to that than to your appetites. As you consider that we are still people who are in the flesh. And we are still in flesh that is corrupt and that will die. But we also we are in flesh that will be renewed by the final work of Christ. But in this time we struggle with that flesh. And so therefore we are people who struggle with our appetite. And this particular passage is to encourage us. To encourage us in who we are in that birthright is a continuation of the previous passage that Maharus spoke on last week, but it is to give us specific things to do as we fight off the appetite that our flesh has and what Satan will tempt us in, knowing that our, our Savior Jesus Christ was tempted as we are in the same way. So I hope that today's title is one that is not a corny title for you, but one that will be one that will stick with you and encourage you and help you in your walk. This is a therefore passage. And you know that whenever there is a therefore passage, it is important for us to look back. And if you weren't with us last week, I would encourage you to go back and read all of chapter 12. Of course, you want to read all of the book of Hebrews to really understand everything. But it truly is in a context that you have to have to understand that because of what was said right before it, this is what to do about it. And particularly there in chapter 12 in verses 7 through 10, we are to remember that God is treating you as sons. Now, if you remember that last week, the primary single word that you could have sticking with you is that God is disciplining his sons, his children. And I, again, highlighted before a couple of weeks ago that when we think about this idea of being sons, it's not to necessarily be transitioned to an understanding of sons and daughters, and we are to think about sons that we all, both men and women, boys and girls, are being treated like sons because of what the Son of God has done. And we have his particular inheritance. We have his name. We have the Son of God's name by being those who are marked by Jesus Christ. And therefore, we too are going to be treated as sons here in this life, by the discipline of God, because, very specifically, because he loves us. And he desires to see in us, as you see again there in Hebrews chapter 12, 7 through 10, that we may share in his holiness. If you remember that the spearhead calling of the book of Hebrews is that we would draw near to God, that we saw there in all of the descriptions and the reminders of the tabernacle and the temple that we now have that which allows us to enter into the Holy of Holies because of what Christ has done. We are able to draw near to God. And the the reality is because Jesus has taken our name before the Lord, we are there actually in identity with the Lord. We are those who are known to him as sons. But we are still kind of standing there at the threshold, though the curtain has been torn open, and we have now the ability to see through his word that we are with God. We are not fully there yet. There is still a fullness of rest to come. And so during that time, as we stand in the threshold, he is making us holy. He is applying that work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. The power of that work and the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit is now being put upon us and so that we may, in the end, fully dwell with the Heavenly Father. That is an amazing thing. And so this discipline is a part of our identity of what is before us But also, it is a process of what is left behind us, which is our sinfulness. We are being disciplined for the purposes so that we may share in the fullness of the holiness of Jesus Christ and share in the fullness of his dwelling. So that's what the context is as we go into this. We see that the writer to the Hebrews is telling us that, therefore, he gives us three particular things to do there in just those two verses. This is one of the particular passages that are just packed full of instructions and imperative verbs. It's like, do this, do this, do this, do this. And so it can kind of be overwhelming, but inside of all of those verbs and all, inside of all of those commands and instructions, we have a continual reminder of the hope that we have. If you look at the book of Hebrews, it is an encouraging book. And we've talked about that a lot because these are people who were suffering, who were under persecution, but not only just dealing with the suffering and the persecution of the culture around them, but also just the inevitable doubt that's within their own hearts and still being those who are in the flesh, they're still struggling with their sins. And so you see that it is an encouragement to be reminded to who we are, but there's always in the context of the finalization of judgment to come. It's saying that we need to hold on to that identity and that truth in Christ. And that if we do not hold tightly to that, if we are not holding on to Christ, we are to be warned that there is a judgment coming. And so we see these, almost these bookends and all of every particular mini sermon that's inside of this grand sermon, hold on, draw near to God, hold on to that confession Gather together in that taste of what the reality is going to be like by being amongst his people because that's where God loves to dwell and not forget that he is coming back and he will judge those who are not holding on to Christ. And so we see here three little points in these two verses here, verses 12 through 13. One, to lift your drooping hands, to strengthen your weak knees, and to make straight paths for your feet. We see that we see that He is using this imagery of the body, which is often given to us in the Scriptures, and when we think about the body in many different ways. We think about the body of Jesus Christ. We think about the body of Jesus Christ through His Church. And here we think about our own particular lives and and even in the context of the corporate body that we are even thinking about in our study Belong on Wednesday nights. We were talking about how we're all different parts of the body. We've all been given different gifts and how necessary it is for us to be all coming together. We have this instruction that as we are remembering that God is treating us as sons with discipline for the sake of sharing in his holiness that our response to that reality is, first of all, to lift up your drooping hands. So it's highlighting for us that, one, we are weak. Our hands are weak. And I think that if we read, we can see that often in a variety of different translations, it's either hands or arms. It's, it's this whole part of our body that, that the things that we have that are supposed to be helping us do things and to move and to, to function They're weak, they're drooping. And we're called to lift them up. We're called to put them before the Lord. When you read the Bible, what what things do God tell us to lift up often? When you you see those instructions, those commands, what does God tell his people to lift up? Our hearts, hearts? good. What else? Our Our heads. What else? Supplications. Supplications. That's right, our, our petitions before the Lords, our calling out to the Lord. What else? Each other. To lift up each other, very good. These are excellent. Any more? Hearts, heads, supplications, one another. What's that? Hands. Lift up our hands, right here. Yes, we're called to lift up our hands. There's one more I'm thinking of that I hope that people will remember. Our eyes, but it would kind of go with our heads, but I would, I would lift up our eyes. What else? It, our mouths. I was getting ready to give you all a hint and say, when you think of me, <laughs> I'm a mouth, right? I'm, a, I'm, I'm often talking, I'm loud. So it would lift up our voices. The God is do, telling us to do all those things. And when we think about the things that tie all those things together, it's this prayer and praise and proclamation It's posturing ourselves before the Lord. And the same thing is here is that because of what God has accomplished and because we are identified as sons, we are to lift up our drooping hands. That we could be having drooping hands for a variety of reasons, one in just the weaknesses of who we are, but also under the, the, the trials and difficulties that we may be facing, both the turmoil inside and outside causing our hands to be weak. Then we also have here, so, so those things are all centered in praise and worship and serving and, and putting our posture before the Lord. Strengthen your weak knees. What do we think of when we think of knees when we are considering the Christian life? What kind of things come into mind when we think about knees? Prayer, prayer again, going back in supplication and calling out to the Lord. Confession of sin. What else in knees? What do you think about when you hear about people as their knees are shaking? Fear and weakness before the Lord. Here we're called to have strengthened knees before the Lord because of those things. And so we are called to, to have our knees <clears throat> allowing us to be lifted up and because of what God has accomplished and and because of who we are in Christ we are to have strong knees I think that it's also for us to remember that we are to be a functioning knees that here in this life that we are to continue to be going back and forth both to prayer and confession and then getting back up I know as I consider my health a lot lately. That That is a challenging thing, both getting down and getting back up. And the interesting thing about getting down, it's hard to, when you get older, it's harder to get down gracefully. And so it's just best just to humble yourself and just let yourself drop. (laughs) But that's where we need to be is of being in that practice, that we would actually get good on the getting down and getting back up, that we would get down in understanding our humility and our weakness and our need for God, but also to stand up, to be encouraged, to be lifted up as we are called to lift up others, that we would be good at trusting the Lord and that we would stand in anticipation that he would continue to fulfill what he's done so our knees should be strong so that we can get down and get back up. That our knees are not so weak that we are collapsed and unable to see and be encouraged to be lifted up. But they're not so stiffed and locked in. And that we are unwilling to let them bend again. And to, to make straight paths for your feet. I, again, I... <laughs> feel like it's, it's just easy to use me as an example here. I know when I started working at CGI over a year ago, um, I had to wait for my vaccine to go through its course so that it, I could be approved to go into the office. And it's funny, within a few weeks after that, they, they canceled the mandate for that. But just happened to fall into that window of time. So, but I, they had already hired me and they didn't really pay attention to the fact that I wasn't allowed to come in yet. So they tried to find things for me to do. I had to go find an office off site somewhere to do my onboarding. But also, they said, well, you know, there's some things around the building that you can be doing um, to help um, improve the facility area. And one of those things is that we now have this new nature trail that. Um, has some places where there's some swings and picnic tables that are really nice, but there's trees in the way, and if you could go down and cut those trees down, um, it would make those views a lot nicer, and I'm like, yeah, I love that. That sounds great. I can do that kind of thing, and so it's a very steep hill there. It's a very beautiful area, but I got down there, and I'm cutting the trees down, and I did a couple of days of that, and I wore my body out. I wore my knees out quite a bit. I actually sprained my knees because I was, un- I was walking unevenly and my body wasn't used to that. And really, my body is not designed for that. I was off of the path and down off of the path trying to do work and my body was not responding to that. Here we're called to make straight paths for our feet. And when I read that, I thought about that situation that I'm already not as in great health as I should be, but I could not continue to do that much longer because my knees became sprained and sore, and I was lame, and so the only thing I could do is try to find good, flat, level, straight areas to walk, because our bodies are not used to that. As we consider the fact that we are in this transitional state, and I love this First couple of verses in this passage today is that it's encouraging us to remember that we are sons and that we're going through discipline, and therefore we can be encouraged to lift up our drooping hands, to strengthen our weak knees, but that we need to continue to make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. It highlights this already-but-not-yet reality of who we are in Christ, that we are sons being disciplined and that God is still working on us. And so therefore we want to put ourselves on straight paths so that we may be healed. And the only way to do that is to seek to be discipled in his word and in the hope of the things that he has called us to do. We see in Psalm 119 that the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I don't want to be up there working on the trail in the dark for sure. I need to have a light. Last night we were at this little farm where they had a maze, and we were there last year, and all we had was our little cell phone lights, and it was kind of hard to see where we we're going. But I took a twelve thousand lumen flashlight with me <laughs> yesterday, and it was people were like, "What in the world is this guy doing?" And we're walking around corners, and I'm like. this big spotlight because I wanted to see where I was going. I wanted to see what was out there. And I was ready this time. And so and we weren't in there as long as last time. (laughs) We took a shorter path. We were wiser. And if we are wise, we'll continue to make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint. We don't want to go off of the trail again. We don't want to go down the embankment. We want to continue to be straight so that we will continue to be healed by the power of what God has accomplished through his word and through the Holy Spirit. And as we see these things, these are things that are mentioned before in Isaiah chapter 35. This is an echoing. I know for certainty just by how the context of it is that Isaiah 35 is in the mind of the writer. And I'm going to read just those first four verses of Isaiah 35. It says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance And with recompense of God, he will come and he will save you. This is a proclamation of future redemption of God's people. And here in the book of Hebrews is highlighting that Jesus has accomplished that fulfillment. And therefore, we can hope in that particular passage, because of what Christ has accomplished, that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad that those who are weak And those who see their sinfulness and their division and their separation from God can now be called to draw near. And we can come and we can praise him. We can serve him with our weak hands now. We can stand. We continue to function faithfully in continual repentance and faith. And we can be those who are discipled and disciplined by holding tightly to his promises to continue to hold on to the hope. That is to come in the final fulfillment of what is to come, while still remembering that there still is a day of judgment to come. All of these things, I believe, encompass what we see there in chapter four, and that I've mentioned before, this calling for us to draw near to God, that we are to draw near to God with our worship, to draw near to God in our continual standing up and being lifted up. And also our going down and our continual repentance and faith in him. And then to be disciples who are understanding that as disciples, another word for disciples, or another word that is, or that, the same word for disciples is used in our understanding of our discipline. That disciples are going to be disciplined and taught by God. John Owen says of this particular passage when we're focusing on this encouragement to be strengthened, is that the same element is afflicting different parts of the body, our hands, our knees, our feet. So the apostle prescribes the same remedy for them all. And he says, raise them to the correct posture, set them right again, apply them to their duty. He's implying here that We have been using our hands wrongly, our knees wrongly, our feet wrongly. We have been doing things with those parts of our gifts in a way that have not been honoring, and they are exhausted, and they are weak. One of the things that we need to realize as Christians, that one, we or as human beings foremost, or first of all, and then secondly, especially those who are Christians, that we can't use these things. We can't use our bodies, we cannot use our lives, we can't use our reputations and our names to do anything but serve the Lord. And when we try to use our members of our body in our lives to serve anything other than that, we will become even more exhausted, even unto death. There will never be a continual satisfaction in using these things that the Lord has given us and so what we see John Owens saying here is that to use them for the correct posture to set them right again and apply them to their duty, to their correct duty. But we need to understand that just, and he says this further, this is still reading from John Owens, that so it was with the woman who could not straighten up at all as she was bowed down, whom Jesus cured and she straightened up, as we see there in Luke chapter 13 that it was Jesus that straightens us up, that we are bound to continue to do wicked things with these members apart from Jesus doing the curing work. We are like this woman that her body could not straighten up, but thanks be to Jesus that we are cured, and so therefore now we can stand up. We are no longer bound to be constantly using the things that the Lord has given us for the wrong purpose. It says, and this is again speaking from John Owens, he's preaching here on this, he's like, in Acts 15, 16, it says, I will rebuild or I will set up David's fallen tent. A restoration to their former state is signified in this word. In our Christian race, we must use all of our spiritual strength. We must tap into the very thing that Christ has already accomplished. It's not that we are pulling ourselves up with our bootstraps, We are remembering that Jesus has accomplished his work. And therefore we are identified as sons and therefore we can be lifted up and strengthened in the Lord. We can draw near to this God that I mentioned there in the call to worship. And this, this amazing calling and understanding and this picture of what it is to go before worship. When we go to Zion before the Lord... We can do that with confidence, not in ourselves, but our confidence in Jesus Christ. Secondly, in verse 14, first of all, in the first verses 12 through 14, we see that we have this ability to draw near, but then we are called to strive to enter into that drawing near, to strive to enter into his rest by striving for peace with everyone. There in verse 14, we see in verse 14, really the summary of all of the law that's able to be accomplished. Now, if you remember what the summary of all the law is that we see there in Deuteronomy. And then Jesus also highlights it is to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In this one verse, we are given this instruction in a different way now, because before it is impossible for us to love God with all of our heart, soul and strength and mind. We see that in the New Testament told again and again, that it, or even in the Old Testament, that it is impossible for man to achieve that calling of the law. But because we are now sons in Christ, we can strive for peace with everyone. And that's pretty crazy. <laughs> if you think about it, if you think about all of the challenges and all of the sin that we have in this world, for us to be called to strive for peace, We can, we can now by the equipping of God and by what he has called us to do and now that we can obey and pursue each relationship in light of his word, we can now strive for peace. Now, it's not saying that we're going to accomplish it. He was the only one who's gonna bring about peace but we can strive for it. We have the ability to approach everyone with the hope of peace. In the process of peace. And then it says, secondly, there in that same verse, and it's basically basically repeating that same command. It's in strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We can strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. As we are considering that we are called to strive for peace with one another, we are being reminded that we can strive for holiness. Again, not hoping in our of ourselves, but hoping in that reality of being sons of God, we can fulfill the summary of the law in Jesus Christ. In man, it is impossible. But in God, all things are possible. Jesus preaches in Matthew 5, Chapter 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We can see the Lord for those who have had their hearts purified. And we are reminded in chapter 10 of Hebrews that Jesus Christ brings about the fulfillment. In verse 16, it says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. God himself renew and lifts up our hearts to be able to strive for peace with one another and to strive for holiness so that we may see God. This is what's been accomplished in Jesus Christ. And so he is telling us to hold hold on to that and to pursue it. And if you remember in chapter four, we are called to strive to enter into his rest. And in chapter 10, we're called to, to come together, to assemble together, to stir one another up to good works and service. There's a corporate understanding of us all entering in together in the dwelling of God. And that has been accomplished again in Jesus Christ. So in the first section, the first two verses, we see the repetition of this call to draw near. And then in verse 14, we see this strive to enter into that rest together by striving for peace with everyone as we strive for holiness in the Lord. And then lastly, here in verses 15 through 17, I believe we have this. Again, this command to continue to hold fast our confession, understanding our sonship, that we are to do so without wavering. And we see that when he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now that's a very interesting command. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And it it almost seems like it's telling us that we gotta do something to achieve something but what is telling us is that we need to hold on to his grace which is we are clearly taught in the scriptures that is not by works but by a gift of God and so what we're being told here is that we are to see to it that we don't fail to obtain the gift of God so it's first of all telling us that for those of the those of us who are in Christ we have been given this gift And so therefore, we've got to remember who we are in Jesus Christ. But there is a warning to us that there is a way in our life to assume upon that gift, but to live out in a way that will despise the gift and to live inconsistently with the gift and therefore we are not going to be the recipients of the gift. Now, Passages like this can encourage people to think that they can lose their salvation. But we have to go back and look at the scriptures in this fullness. That it's, it's basically we know that if we are not of God, we've never been of God. And if we are of His, and from, we can see this in John 17, that Jesus will accomplish drawing every single one of the people that God has proclaimed since the beginning of the world who is going to be his, he will bring them into himself. So we know that in the reality that God was not going to lose any of his children. But as we are working that out in our lives, there is a way to assume upon ourselves that we have sonship, but to despise that sonship and to reject it. And the example that the writer to the Hebrews gives to us in this passage is going to be Esau. Now, I'll encourage you, and I don't have time to dig deep into it today, but go back and read Genesis chapter 24 and 25 and 26 and read about Esau. Read about this calling, and it's a very interesting story, and it's, a, it's another challenging story for us to read because there's a lot of sin and confusion and, and things, but we see inside of that that God is going to continue to bring about his promises through the children of Isaac, and he's going to have a specific one, which is going to be Jacob. But that Esau is going to be the firstborn. And typically the birthright goes to the firstborn. But God already promised, Rebecca, that it was going to, the birthright is going to end up being with Jacob. And so we can see the big picture very early on in that. But then we see how it works out. And where we see it most vividly is how Esau responds to his birthright. And that's what we're being instructed by in this particular portion of Hebrews today. He says, "See to it that no one fails to abstain excuse me, to obtain the grace of God." And if we want to think about the grace of God right now in light of our sonship, that there's two things that can happen in our lives that will be evidence that we are not holding on to that gift of grace from God. It says, one, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So the first thing that it highlights is this root of bitterness. Bitterness is a sin that is in response to circumstances. Sometimes it's a response of circumstances, of something of disappointment, or of difficulty, and sometimes bitterness is a response to other people's sins. Now, if we remember the context of Hebrews, the Christians, the Hebrew Christians here, are suffering. They're suffering persecution and difficulty. Their context and their circumstances would be easily things that would cause people to feel embittered by. But also just in the reality of understanding, we know that it only takes two people being around each other for a little bit for bitterness to creep up because we're going to sin against each other. And often our resentment to that sin is what creates a root of bitterness. Now, being disappointed and having a rough time, even being angry or not liking your circumstances, that's not bitterness. Bitterness is when it creeps over into a sinful posture toward one another and ultimately toward God. It says there in that verse there, it says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. It's it's one thing to be sinned against. And a lot of times when we're sinned against, we begin to go, well, I'm the victim. Or I'm being persecuted. But then as that seeps deep into our heart and we become resentful toward one another or resentful toward God, that can turn into a sin in of itself and we are now defiled. I know that as a pastor and as a father and as just a human being and a husband, (laughs) that a lot of times, the one who becomes embittered by someone else's sin turns out to be the greater sinner in the case. That it can very easily, somebody can do something against you, and you know how this goes. Somebody does some kind of infraction, and then your response to that, sometimes often in anger or even even in silent treatment or in turning away from that person, is actually worse than the initial offense. And you become defiled. What you thought was you were the righteous one and the victim, you're now the perpetrator. And that's a very hard place to be because we're constantly being reminded by Satan and ourselves, but I'm the victim here. They're the one who started it. (laughs) I got a little joke with my cleaning ladies at work they're always picking on me, and so I, I, I pick back a little bit, and I said, well, you started it like it was okay for me to, to play practical jokes on them because you started it. If it wasn't for that, then what I did would have not been bad, or would have been bad, but it's not bad anymore because you started it. And that's what the children often say. Well, you started it. No, it doesn't give us a right <laughs> to go ahead and send back, and often when we come back, we come back with a fuller vengeance. And we become defiled. Now, to look at this contextually, if you go and you read the story of Esau, he had circumstances that are seemingly reasonable for someone to become embittered by. Now, I don't know how much he knew about what God had told Rebekah, but he knew, we know that at the end of Esau, well, close to the end of Esau's story, that he had always had this resentment toward Jacob. Even Jacob's name was going to be the usurper. He knew that there was going to be this conflict. And you know that he's held on to that bitterness his whole life. And that bitterness caused a hardness in him. And we can see, you know, you might read the passage here in Hebrews and say, what is this part about him having no chance to repent? That there at the end, there were two things in the story of Esau that are problematic. One, he lost his birthright, and we'll talk about that just in a second. And then he also lost his blessing, the inheritance that would come from his father. And when he lost his blessing, he goes back and he remembers the whole context of the story and he blames Jacob. And if you read the whole context of the story and you read what is told here in Hebrews, You know that Esau lost his birthright because of his appetite. Because he despised it and because he didn't count it as worthy as much as he considered the fulfillment of his appetite. You don't see him repenting about his own sin. You see him blaming Jacob. And so that bitterness become a wall for Esau, that what happened in that circumstance kept him from being able to see his own need for repentance. And that's what bitterness will do to you when you dwell on it. You become righteous in your own eyes. You look at all of the reasons why everybody else is in the wrong and you cannot see your need for repentance I know that as a husband and a father, I'm often sitting down somewhere in a room by myself when some things get out of hand and I've been arguing. And I know this truth, and I'm thankful that I learned this truth sometime in the last couple of decades. And I'm sitting there, and I'm mad at the world, and I can't think of logically how I'm in the wrong, but I know I'm in the wrong. And I'm like... Lord, I am so tangled up in my bitterness, so tangled up in my anger, and I can see everybody's wrong here, but I just know, I don't know if it's just the Holy Spirit or if it's the inside of the power of the word, I know I need to repent and I do not want to. You ever been there? And that's a grace. It's it's the worst feeling in the world. That transitional time is the worst thing because you like, you know, you're at the end of your road on being able to point at everybody else's sin. You know, you've crossed over into bitterness. You know that your actions have crossed over into sin, and you know that the only place to go is to repent. And then I try to start seeking for ways. And thankfully, I'm not I've been stuck in that situation that Esau is. I'm able to seek out repentance and say, okay. I don't even know what all I've done to mess this up, but I know I have. And then it usually starts becoming more and more clear to me where I need to repent. Do not let bitterness block you because if you are one who is so caught up in bitterness that you cannot repent, you're probably not a Christian. Bitterness will send you to hell. Do not be left at accusing the whole world and God of everything in the world. Flee into repentance because you will lose your blessing. And then secondly, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. That's fairly peculiar because if you go back in Genesis it doesn't say that Esau committed any sexual sin. But what it teaches us in this particular passage, it does say sexual, immoral, or unholy, like Esau, that there's something going on. And if you go to that story about his birthright, you see that simply Esau was hungry. He was so hungry, his appetite had overcome him to such a degree that when he came home from being out and hunting and he came home and Jacob, who was one who stayed at home and liked to cook, came in and there was this red stew cooking and he was like, oh, give me some of that stew, this lentil stew. I don't know what the redness is, if that's some kind of spice, if that's, you know, I don't know what it was, but it was something I'm sure, I'm sure the smell just just hit him. Because I can't imagine just the lentils in of itself would have been desirable. It must have been the redness of that lentil stew. There had to be some kind of spice in there. because I mean, he was a meter of meat, so much that Jacob you know, favored Esau because he would bring in the meat. And he came in and he, and he was so weak and he was so weary, he was so overcome by his appetite, that Jacob said, "I'll trade you. You give me your birthright." And I'll give you that. He's like, what is the birthright to me? Give me, give me, give me. And he sold it. The the trade, the the fair was trade. The, the, The trade was fair. And he gave it up and he despised it, it says. And what we're being told here is for us to understand that in our flesh, there are things, there's nothing wrong with having an appetite for food. Some of you probably, it's 20, 20 after right now, your appetite is probably increasing. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> now, if you start cursing me in your mind and in your heart, that might be sin. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with an appetite. God gave us these bodies and he gave us appetite. He gave us drives in our body he gave us things that give us comfort he gives us things he, he designed us to, to be able to rest and then have enjoyment but what we see here is that and we see admonishments like this in the book of hebrews because it's a it's a it's a dangerous thing that this sexual immoral lifestyle comes from appetites that are out of control when we become overcome by our appetites and we're not understanding how dangerous our appetites can be, but there's so many places in our life, it's, it's touching on, like, remember what Esau had with his hunger, remember sexual immorality, well, actually, remember everything that we have that God has given us good about our bodies. When we take it, and we are out of control with it, we can live a certain life where we love to fulfill our appetites, and it could be anything. It could be for excitement. It could be for some kind of other fulfillment in our life, exhilaration, or just comfort. I mean, if you think about it, think about how people sin that when they get up in the morning, they just want some peace and quiet and maybe to go back to bed. You ever want to try to bring somebody to quick sin first thing in the morning is to bother somebody who's still sleepy-headed, <laughs> right? Kind of poke them before they get their caffeine. are <laughs> alone. You know, their appetite is going to respond. Their body is like, no, no, no. (laughs) Sometimes it's just for some peace and quiet. I know I get that way at home. My appetite for just some peace and quiet can cause me, if I let it get out of control, I can respond in a way to where it's sin. The thing that we see here is that when we love our appetites, more than our calling as sons of God. Remember, Esau was a son of the people of God through the, the, where, the, where the promises of God are gonna go through, that Esau in that moment of weakness, he gave up that identity. He gave up that, that eternal blessing or at least that earthly blessing of inheritance from his father. I'm a little nervous about fully saying that he is fully outside of that scope, but it seems to be that way from what the word of God says about Esau, that it was an eternal despising. He did not get to receive the relief and rest that came from the blessing of his father because his appetite for temporary fulfillment overcome his love for an eternal fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's important for us to recognize our appetites. It may not be sexual immorality. It may not be food. But all of you I know have physical bodies and you are in corrupt flesh and I know that Satan is alive and active in each of you. Not in that's, that, that's what, he's alive and around each of you, not in each of you. Sorry about that. And he will be tempting you in your flesh to give in to your appetites. And I know this because that is what he did. He had the audacity to do so before Jesus Christ. What we see in Esau is that he gave up that identity and. God's blessing to fulfill his appetite. He let bitterness overcome him to where he could not see his need to repent of his own actions. And therefore he was unable to find repentance. And therefore he did not receive the blessing. Remember what I said that in, you see repeated in Hebrews, you see this calling to draw near. You see this calling to hold fast and to do so without wavering. You see this calling to be amongst his people and to be building each other up. But there's always this warning of final judgment because we need to not get too comfortable assuming upon a birthright that doesn't actually belong to you. We need to seek out trusting what Christ had done so that we may obtain that gift. And that we must follow through in this trusting and this calling for us, trusting in Jesus Christ for us so that we will not waver and abandon this hope that we have in Christ. I'm going to close by reading Very familiar passage that I've mentioned in the pulpit time and time again, but it must be mentioned again here when we consider in light of this calling that we are the sons of God, that he is treating us like the sons of God, that he has given us discipline so that we may obtain that holiness, that we must remember that this has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, if you turn to your Bibles real quickly, I'll read through and we'll close with that because this is why we can hold on to these particular commands. This is why we can actually obey these commands when we see what Jesus Christ accomplished in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, He was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, and look what he says. What does he say to him? If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, by every promise, By every proclamation that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus held on to his birthright. He held on to the word of God. He held on to the promise of God. He was hungry, his appetite was active. Jesus had an appetite. So we know that Jesus was not in sin to have an appetite. He was not in sin to be suffering in hunger. He wasn't in sin because he had a body that was driving him to want to receive fulfillment of that hunger. And we also know that he was given the identity of the Son of God. That Satan himself will even tempt us by reminding us that we are sons of God. And a lot of times that's where he goes the most. He says, you're a Christian. You're in the church. You can take advantage of this circumstance. You are a special person. You can assume upon God because you are one of his sons. Therefore, it would be okay for you to do something to fulfill your appetite wrongly. I promise you, so many Christians have defamed the name of God by giving in to that temptation in so many different ways let us continue. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, for he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This admonishment in the book of Hebrews is telling us not to put God to the test, to assume a sonship that is not ours and to live unfaithfully and wicked. To twist the word of God for our own purposes, for our own glory. We are not to assume and to test the Lord. We are to submit and to hold fast the confession to the things that God has called us to do without wavering. And then Jesus said to him, "Sorry." And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, "All of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me." Here we have the devil saying, "The blessing that you're fighting for, I know, is the kingdom. You can have the blessing? I can give you this blessing. Yeah, he was dealing with the birthright in the beginning, and now he's saying, well, let me show you the blessing. I will give you the kingdom. All you have to do is worship and serve me, and I will give you the blessing. Now, remember Esau, he was very upset that he lost the blessing, that he wasn't going to get the blessing. But he wasn't understanding really where the blessing is coming from, which was ultimately God. And he didn't understand that all the way back at the time of the birthright. And so therefore he exchanged his birthright so that he may worship and serve his appetite. And here we have Jesus responding to the same temptation. And he says, be gone Satan. For it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Because Jesus Christ accomplished and defeated Satan in this account, that particular account, these three particular temptations that embody all of the temptations that we are also faced with because he defeated Satan at that time. We now have a hope and the ability to defeat Satan ourselves because of the power of what was accomplished by Jesus Christ. And that is why the beginning of this particular paragraph begins with the lift up your hands in worship and service to the Lord. We take up where he left off. He left off saying, I am only going to serve my father and worship him alone. And therefore, we can take up where he left off by the power of Jesus Christ. We can worship and serve him with thanksgiving, with continual repentance and faith, by continual discipline and discipleship in his word, holding fast to everything he has proclaimed.